Hello, hello, hello! Welcome to Cup of Taboo. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Tyler, and I am ready to finish with this guy. This is episode 7! Yay! This is the final part on BTK. Finally! Freaking finally! Hopefully this is getting released a couple of days after the second episode because I want this guy out of my head. Then next week I want to do something fun, like, you know, a list of something fun and interesting and weird. And uh, yeah, in the previous episode I accidentally uploaded the full episode, which uh, happened to have 20 something minutes of just plain music at the end. So I had to delete the episode, re-upload. It was fun times. You know, we, we live and we learn. Every time we do something, we learn something, right? Anyway, I have got a new setup again. Oh gosh, it's just never ending. I swear. I don't have my cool little soundboard right now because I think that is what is destroying my sound. I think something's wrong with that. Your girl did some experiments. And I think that that's the problem. So I can't hear myself recording right now. So I am going on blind faith and hoping that everything works out. Wish me luck. Well, wish you guys luck because you have to listen to it. Anyway, I'm going to give you a quick recap of BGK from the past two episodes. Dennis Rader murdered the Otero family on the 15th of January, 1974. He killed Mr. and Mrs. Otero and their two youngest children. On the 4th of April, 1974, he murdered Catherine Bright and he shot her brother twice in the head. On the 17th of March, he murdered Shirley Vian in front of her children that he had locked in the bathroom. On the 8th of December, 1977, he murdered Nancy Fox. He then called the police the next day to report his very own murder. On the 26th of April, he killed Maureen Hedge. He took her body out of the house and did a photo shoot with her body in bondage in his church. On the 16th of September, he murdered, he murdered Vicky Wacherl in his lunch break. On the 19th of January 1991, he murdered Dolores Davis and he took her body and he hid it under a bridge, also taking explicit photos with a porcelain mask on. So, well, you know, I hope that that sort of brings back some terrible memories. And uh, let's carry on. Warning, the following podcast contains explicit descriptions of sex, torture and murder. Listener discretion is advised. As I mentioned in the previous episode, Dennis Rader was an egotistical moron. He had asked the cops and news outlets what they thought would be a good name for him. I mean, my favourite, I think, was The Poetic Strangler. <laughs> Please, Dennis, you couldn't write a poem even if one slapped you in the face. But also, just, just stop it. Stopping you. He also, like, tried his best to fit in with the big-wig serial killers, you know? I mean, he, he called... Ted Bundy, Ted of the West Coast, in one of his letters, like they were besties. Okay, Dennis, okay. You keep trying, though. You know, actually, don't. Stop. Stop it. Sorry, I just want some more wine. So, after murdering Dolores Davis in 1991, Dennis remained quiet. He remained quiet until 2004. He did state, though, that he never really stopped trolling in this time. He was always on the hunt. He also got his rocks off by reading about other criminals. In 1998, they caught the Toy Box Killers, which is another case that I will definitely cover because it is the stuff that nightmares are made of. And yeah, but 
I mean, I'll get to that eventually. But in 2001, they caught Gary Leon Ridgway, who was found through familial DNA from crimes back in 1980s. And uh, this made Rado a little nervous because, you know, he left DNA at at least three crime scenes. He left his semen at the Otero and Fox houses. And also his skin was under Vicky Vajaro's fingernails from when she scratched him. Hmm. So he was like, hmm, I wonder if they, uh, I wonder if they kept my DNA. Oh, damn. So this is where Detective Kenny Landwehr was an absolute champion. Everyone was pushing him to get the DNA samples tested, but he kept saying no. He wanted to wait until the time was right. He wanted until they had a solid lead because they only had so little DNA from the samples that they got that he didn't want to accidentally like run it through tests in the early phases of testing and destroy it. Which, good for him. This is actually part of how they managed to catch him later on. As I said in the previous episode, Dennis had landed a job at the park as the Park City Compliance Officer. And, you know, he took his role very seriously. He was an avid note-taker, and he would often write up pages-long reports for very minor instances. He would, like, threaten people's dogs, and if somebody had a car parked in their driveway that looked a little bit off, he would write them a note. And, you know give them a fan. He also took some people's dogs to the pounds and got them put down without their permission. Extremely wrong. Besides that, what he would do is he would be super nosy and like be too much in everyone's business, if you know what I mean. So a lot of women felt very uncomfortable around him because he would just kind of stare and often they would look outside and see him just staring at their property. He was kind of like a bully, you know? If he, if he found something wrong, he would write up a report and he would stand there with his little ruler and measure the grass to make sure it wasn't above the standard length of grass. I mean, if I had a garden, you best believe I would not be able to mow that thing all the time, which means it would just be bad. I would be getting fines left, right and center. It's a good thing I don't have a garden. So remember, he was also older now. And he had his full-on pedo-turtle look going for him at this point, which I think also scared quite a couple of, couple of people. You know, he didn't look, uh, he, he wasn't the handsome young man that he once was. So a couple of women actually moved out of the neighborhood because, oh, sorry, a woman actually moved out of the neighborhood because he had harassed her so much. How did they let him keep his job? I mean, you would think that after a couple people complained, they would be like, actually, you know what, Dennis, you're just not doing a good job. But you know what? Then again, government. Eh, I don't know, man. So in 2003, a lawyer named Robert Beatty wanted to teach a class on BTK. However, most of his students had never actually even heard of the killer. So at this point, he contacted a reporter named Roy Wenzel. He was the guy who wrote one of the books that I used as a lot of my material. And he asked him if he could help. Roy went to the resident BTK expert, Hearst Laviana, and who was a reporter for the Eagle. And he asked if, you know, he wanted to help. He said BTK, B, <laughs> BT wanted to write the book about BTK and he had requested Wenzel's help. So Wenzel had asked Laviana for help. And he kept pestering him to write the story, but Laviana was not interested. It was like, 
Ugh, dude, it was so long ago. I just, you know, it's just a, it's just a dead end story, that one. Until the 30 year anniversary of the Otero murders. On the 17th of January 2004, Hearst Laviana's 30 year anniversary story ran in the paper. Some of the excerpts of that article went as follows. It was a routine followed by thousands of Wichita women in the late 1970s. Upon arriving home, check the phone immediately. If the line is dead, get out. I don't think people today realize the kind of tension there was in Wichita at home at that time, said lawyer Robert Beattie. Unquote. Beattie said that he hoped that someone would come forward if they had any information regarding this case and that the other and the other BTK cases. Dennis Rader happened to read this article and he was appalled. Part of another part of the article went, although the killings remain firmly implanted in the minds of those who lived through them, Beattie said many Wichitans probably have never heard of BTK. He said he used the BTK case during a segment of his class last year and was surprised at the reaction. I had zero recognition from the students, he said. Not one of them had heard of it. I'm hoping someone will read the book and come forward with some information. A driver's license, a watch, some car keys, he said. So remember, it was actually only 13 years since his last murder of Dolores Davis, but the cops hadn't tied him to that one yet though. So he was so offended that, you know, he hadn't made that much of an impact though. Like, how could he have not inspired the fear that he wanted to reign over Wichita? He was just like, how? How, how, do, how do these children not know about me? How did their parents not tell them all about me? So, he went over to one of his hidey holes, hidey holes, and decided he was going to, sh he was going to show them. Because he was an egotistical narcissist who just could not help himself. If they wanted a li driver's license, they were going to get a driver's license, he thought. On the 19th of March, 2004, Laviana, the reporter, received an envelope, and inside the envelope was a series of letters, three Polaroid photographs of Vicky Vacherl, and a copy of her driver's license. These photos had, had to have been taken by her killer because the police did not take any photos at that scene. They tried reviving her. So, this was a little bit dodgy in the first place. He was like, oh, damn. So, the date that this letter was posted was actually the anniversary date for someone's death, the 17th of March. And the sender was listed as Bill Thomas Kilman, otherwise BTK. The return address was a vacant building, something old manor or whatever, which they thought was a play on words because he was saying he was an old man, but I don't know. Raider was now 59 years old, and this whole thing suddenly, like, it got him riled up. He was like, ooh, exciting, I'm going to start playing cat and mouse. There was a code on top of the page, which was just a series of random letters and a BTK symbol in the bottom corner. At this point, remember, Vicky was still an unsolved murder. The cops thought that her husband had done it and gotten away with it. The newspaper journalists contacted the police and the police asked them to give them as much time as they could before publishing the story. At this point, Kenny Landwehr called the FBI and he was like, guys, I need you to give me some advice. Like, what do I do? This, this, I don't know if this is real. They, they sort of came to the realization that it was real, mostly because of the photographs. 
And these are the points that the profilers gave to Kenny Landwer. They said that BTK likes publicity, so they should call news conferences and say things about him. Make them look like real news conferences, but make communication with BTK the real purpose. They should read scripted statements and answer no questions from reporters. Next, pick one person to conduct all the news conferences to give BTK a face to fixate on. It could be dangerous for the person doing it, but it's necessary. Last, imply that you are making progress on the case. BTK does not want to get caught. And if he thinks you are breathing down his neck, he might be reluctant to kill. Now, remember, the cops are just worrying at this point, like, you don't want him to suddenly decide to kill someone again, you know? So they were frantic. Imagine he has this monster that you couldn't catch for decades, and now suddenly he's taunting you with a letter out of nowhere. What do you do? Like, they thought he was either dead or arrested or something. They didn't know that he was still around because he had gone dormant for so long. So they decided that they were going to play this in a way that made sure that they didn't waste any time or resources. They were going to use the news and the science that they had. So they were like, we're going to set up a tip line. We're going to test DNA. Well, we're going to compare DNA. And that was it. So they decided that anybody who was named as a tip would get swabbed and their profile would be compared to the profile under Vicky Vejero's, um nails. If the profiles didn't match, they would just, next, instead of, you know, researching the person, going and looking at the history, going and chatting to them, interviewing them, interviewing their friends, which they would normally have to do. So Detective Landwehr told the reporters at the Eagle that he would appreciate it if they didn't show the code at the top of the paper or the signature at the bottom. So they said that they were going to publish that BTK had returned and they were also going to show a picture of Vicky's driver's license. Everyone agreed and on the 24th of March, the Eagle published the story on their website, kansas.com. The opening paragraph was frightening. It went like so. A serial killer who terrorized Wichita during the 1970s by committing a series of seven murders has claimed responsibility for an eighth slaying and is probably now living in Wichita, police said on Wednesday. The tip lines at this point just lit up. All the cops could do was, you know, try and calm everyone down. And within the first 24 hours, over 300 tips were received. And in the next 24 hours, another 700 tips were received. And if you were named in a tip, you would get swabbed. It's actually quite funny because quite a couple of the detectives and the reporters who had been on this case for the entire time were named as suspects, understandably. So they also had to get swabbed. They were all cleared, obviously. And um, yeah, they became like a running joke. So they managed to get to Vicky's um, husband, Bill, and they managed to get a DNA sample from him. And finally... After 17 years, he was cleared from the crime, which is, imagine living with that for so long. So at this point, Kenny Landwehr would talk in press con conferences as though he was trying to talk to the killer. You know, he was trained exactly what to say. He would say that they have received some communication. They were testing its authenticity, yada, yada, yada. He would very much like to talk to this person, understand what was going on, yada, yada, yada. So that was, that was what they were doing. 
So at the top of the, the letter, the, the letters that were stenciled were GBSOAP7-TNLTRDE-ITBSFAV14, which was supposedly German fractional code. I don't, I don't even know what that means, but uh, Raider did say later that it meant let BT know for his book. Okay, thanks. Why didn't you just write that? Fool. Trying to be so clever. <laughs> On the 4th of May, 2004, Cake TV received an envelope from Thomas B. Kingman. Again, BTK mixed around. And this contained a complex full-page word puzzle, which I will post a photo of on my blog. The package also included a piece of paper with chapter headings for the BTK story. The chapters were as follows. Chapter 1. A serial killer is born. Chapter 2. Dawn. Chapter 3. Fetish. Chapter 4. Fantasy world. Chapter 5, The Search Begins. Chapter 6, BTK's Haunts. Chapter 7, PJ's. Chapter 8, M-O-I-D, Ruse. Chapter 9, Hits. Chapter 10, Treasured Memories. Chapter 11, Final Curtain Call. Chapter 12, Dusk. Chapter 13, Will There Be More? At this point, Detective Landwehr had another press conference where he said that he would be sending the letters to the FBI to confirm the authenticity of them. I think that this was a little bit of provoking from the cops, and it was very clever. He was kind of saying, we have these things, we're not sure if they're real, like he knew that they were real, but he was just saying, uh, we don't know if they're real or not, so that BTK would be tempted to follow up, if you will. Dennis said the following... Quote, With 30 years of material and growing older each year, I knew that I needed to get it out of the house. My BTK years as a young serial killer were done. Although, like any older man, he still dreams of the day when he was strong and masculine, when he could whip the world. He had once brought terror to Wichita. With the news of BT's book, I thought it was an opportunity to have some fun, like a chess game, cat and mouse with the police. At the same time, I would reduce my mother load. I had planned to put images and articles on computer disks and store them in a bank deposit box, but I could send the evidence items in packages. I mean, it is kind of smart. Like, I mean, no, no, it's not smart. You shouldn't have murdered people, but get rid of your evidence. There you go. Instead of keeping all of your freaking trophies, why get rid of it. May as well send it to the cops in a fun game, right, Dennis? He was very good at not getting any prints and DNA on his letters. He would wear gloves, trim the edges of the pages, and use a damp sponge to close the envelopes. This was very tedious, obviously, but he did it. And, I mean, there was never any DNA on anything, which is good for him. So, on the 9th of June, there was a package in a plastic bag that had been taped to a stop sign that was found. Inside the bag was an envelope that had BTK Fieldgram, basically kind of like a telegram because it was short and to the point, but it was in the field. <laughs> he thought he was such a cop. Inside the envelope, there was three pieces of paper that were all photocopied and they had reduced pictures on them. Two of them featured chapters for Death on a Cold January Mooring, spelled wrong, with a drawing of a nude bound woman hanging from a rope. The drawing was captioned, 
The sexual thrill is my bull. The third page repeated the list of 13 chapters for the BTK story with IDMO ruse blacked out. The now familiar BTK symbol appeared at the bottom right corner. I will read that for you now. If a person happened to be out one of these cold morning in a certain part of Wichita, that is the northeast part on a particular morning in January, he might have noticed a man park his car in a store parking lot, because, pause briefly, then walk across the street and disappear among the house and commercial building. If they had followed him, they would have noticed his head bent low to the ground and wearing a heavy parka. If they would have looked closer, they would notice his eye dart back and forth across the street checking the house windows and door. As he near a house in the corner, he quickly glanced around and jumped the wooded fence surrounding the house. He knew the family left the house approximately 8.45 and they would walk out the car and leave for school and in a approximately seven minutes, the Laney, Judy, would return home. He had early in the week saw them leave for school one day. He thought to himself, say this may be it, a perfect setup. A house on the corner, a garage set off from the house, a fenced yard, a large space nearby a neighbor house, especially the back door. It was a few days later that he stopped across the street and followed the family car to see where they went that morning. She took the kids to school each day and returned. A perfect setup. It was close to his fantasy of a victim all to himself, a person he could tie up, torture and maybe kill. Finally, about 20 minutes before 9, the door unlocked and the boy stepped outside. In just a flash, he ordered him back inside, confronting the family. Armed with a pistol and knife, he told them that this was a stick-up and not to be alarmed. The family was preparing to leave. The kids were packing their lunches and had gathered their coats by the table. The mother, Judy, asked what was going on and said they had no money of anything of value. The boy was by his folk's side looking scared and the girl, Josephine, was be beginning to cry. All of them gather in the hallway, he told them his orders. He was wanted and needed the car, money and food. Joe noticed his gun handshake and told the family to settle down and all would be okay. Rex wanted the pest out and told them he would shoot it or them if they try any funny tricks, expressing that the gun he held waxed an automatic and held hollow point bullets that would kill Joe. That would kill. Joe reassured him that if the dog was out of the way things would things would better. So agreeing the man let Joe put the dog out, Bot being very careful of Joe. He said at this point that he bound the parents hand and foot. He said Julie, he kept calling her Judy, complained that her hands were going numb, so he retied them. He began to tie up the girl. Her hair was too long and kept getting the way when he tries to gag her in the first place. Tears rolled down her face and Rex said he was sorry about pitching her hair. He gagged them, then slipped a plastic bag over Joe's head. The others immediately began to scream. He could see tears on their faces. He tried to cover their mouth with his gloved hand, but they pleaded for him to release the boy and Joe. Joe had moved to the other bedpost and rummed a hole in his bag, but he was not feeling good and had threw up and breathing heavy. The boy's eye were open now. Josephine was crying and Judy still pleading for, them, for him to leave the house. They would not tell. He produced a coil of rope and walked over to Judy and in her crying, pleading voice, What are you doing? 
He slipped the rope around her neck and strangled her slowly. Josephine cried out, Mommy, I love you. It was all horror, and maybe it was all bullshit fiction, but the writer obviously enjoyed writing it. Josephine kept asking him to be careful, but Rex told her her mother, her mother, her dad would be asleep also after he quit tightening the rope. He then slipped the garrote around the girl's neck. The grasp, she grasped her eye, she grasped her eye, bulge. Then she passed out. Judy was now by now awake, her eyes open. Slowly moving her head, this time Rex make a clove hitch and placed it over Judy's neck. She cried, God have mercy on you. Before he tightened the noose, her eyes really bulged because of the extreme pressure the tight clove hitch makes. She gasped, grasped, and struggled, but soon passed out. Blood appeared, eye and mouth and nose. Returning to the basement, he found Josephine awake and looking at the ceiling. He then tied her feet together and then around her knees and lower abdomen. Secure tightly, he pulled up her sweater and cut her bra into her small aureole exposed, so probably the first man to lay eye on them except for her father. With that done, he again checked the area for mistakes, nothing out of place. He returned to the girl. She asked him if he was going to do the same things he, he had done to the rest. No, he told her. The rest were asleep. He picked her up and took her tired body to the sewer pipe. There, laying on her back, he asked her if her dad had a camera. She, she asked, no, then gag her. Please, she said. Don't worry, baby, he said. You'll be in heaven tonight with the rest. That was rough. Wow. That was the first time I actually read that out loud, and it's a lot more different out loud than it is in your head. Whoa. Shoot. On July 17th, an employee at the library found a plastic bag in the book drop. He opened the bag and found papers with BTK on them. He called the police who closed the library and collected the bag. This was another letter from BTK who claimed to have stopped working on his story to, in quotes, deal with Jake Allen. Jake was a young man who was run over by a train 12 days earlier. BTK had claimed to have been the one who had put him there. He described that his sparky was going big time while he was picking out the letter just thinking about Jake in bondage and on those tracks. However, it was discovered that it was actually just suicide. Jake had bound himself and put himself on that track. BTK also threatened that he had found new victims. He had seen a woman and a few latchkey kids that he had his eyes on, but he was older now. Not as good, he said. He then went quiet. The cops decided they would continue talking to him through press conferences to build a kind of rapport between him and Detective Landwehr. They decided that they were going to take an older poem that they were going to come up with any reason to report on it. So they used the Oh Death to Nancy poem, which was loosely based on the folk song Oh Death. Which Dr. P.J. Wyatt, an English professor, had actually used in her class. They had said in this press conference that BTK often used PJ in his letters and they wondered if there was a connection between the PJs in his letters and PJ Wyatt. He used PJ in reference to Project. I don't know. So the cops knew this was like a far stretch because they had actually spoken to Dr. Wyatt back in 1978 and there was no connection at all. However, they wanted BTK to tell them that. They wanted him to either be like, oh my gosh, you guys are so smart, well done. Or they wanted him to be like, nah, you dumbasses, this is so wrong. BTK did not respond to these claims. So on the 26th of August, six days after their news, that news conference, Detective Landwehr went and did another news conference about another poem. 
the Oh Anna, Why Didn't You Appear poem. He asked if anyone had seen the original poem and if anyone knew anything. BTK, once again, did not respond. So at this point, Raider had decided that he wanted an 11th victim. And what other time to kill his 11th victim than in the 11th month, October? Yes! I mean, duh! So he decided that he was going to attack on the 22nd of October, the weekend before Halloween. Spooky. He had an elder lady picked out and he said that he had actually saved his seminal fluid in several small containers in the freezer at home. It was it was in the back frozen with the fish bait. Imagine you go try catch fish but you took the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, fishy, fishy, fishy. It doesn't work. Okay, sorry. So he was then going to take this and spread it all over her and her bed, you know, because he was unaware of the fact that his DNA was being tracked at the time. So, and I mean, he thought he was an unknown person. So if they found DNA, what were they going to do? They didn't have anyone to, to suspect and to compare it to. So that was what his plan was. So this, in his words, This was supposed to be my opus, my grand finale. And to make it different, I would set the house on fire using propane canisters. This was number 11, my 11th hour, with unknown what come ne- comes next. When he drove to the house on 22nd of October, there was a construction crew outside on the street. And traffic was insane and it, it was just too risky. He was like, I can't get away. So he actually was like, oh, I can't do this, never mind. But he had already mailed the next package, which included his plans for this murder. <laughs> because he's a moron. So he just... He, he just gave up <laughs> at that point. So a United Parcel Service driver actually found a strange package in a drop box near the I-135 in the center of the city. And this was the latest drop. It contained a four-page document labeled C2, scrawled to the left of the title Dawn. It appeared to be a chronological account of BTK's childhood and early adulthood. There was also a two-page list titled Three, One, Two, Three, Uno, Dos, Tres, Theory. The D- BTK world works in threes and is based on the eternal triangle. It had long been thought that BTK had a fascination with the numeral three. All of the Wichita murder victims had a three in their home address. So the cops kind of picked up on that, which is good for them because, you know, he, he did. He even said so, but they picked up on it, which was like, cool. Well done, guys. So the cop documents were copied recopied reduced several times which made it very difficult to read but also very difficult to trace so it was very boring apparently (laughs) it was supposed to be an exciting read in his eyes i'm pretty sure it was really exciting but they did say that he was a dull writer (laughs) so here is a little bit from that mother slept beside me at times The smells, the feel of underclothes, and she let me rub her hair. Railroad sounds and smell of coal. Mother worked somewhere near the RRs. Railroads. Mother gone all day and days at time. Grandparents took care of me. I missed mother a lot. Warm baths in a wash tub. They bathe us. Kissing cousin and I on the porch in the summer and by a stove in the winter. And there was also this. (laughs) Masturbation reflections. Ten, eleven years old. If you masturbate, God will come and kill you. Mom words after she found seminal yellow stain in her underwear one day. She tried to beat me. I fought back. 
She held my hands behind my back and used the man's belt to whip me. Funny, it hurt, but Sparky liked it. Mother finally quit and said, Oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> what? Uh, like they said, it, we don't know if it's true, but oh my gosh. So he also wrote that he had used prostitutes and that he was born in 1939, which is a lie, in Texas or down south. As a boy, he secretly looked at girly books about sadomasochism and bondage. How's that girly? So he did go peeping and he also said that he had hanged cats and a dog. And he also said that he was in the Air Force in the 60s and he broke into people's houses while he was in the service. At this point, he also listed some of his favorite serial killers, including Jack the Ripper, the Boston Strangler, Ted Bundy, and Richard Speck. He wrote, he wrote about them as though he had actually studied their crimes. They all got caught, except the Ripper, BTK wrote. Could I become the killer and not get caught? The rambling two-page eternal triangle list included the following. Universe, God, Cosmos, Holy Spirit, Elements, Woman-Man-Sex. Psycho dash serial killer dash BTK, BTK dash victim BTK BTK dash victim dash police, detective dash others dash landwehr, details dash time dash hit, hit dash thrill dash kill, and it also made reference to PJ Boardwater and PJ Littlekey, which were the victims that he wanted to attack but didn't. And the last item in the package was a collage of children's photos cut from advertisements with gags and bindings drawn on them with a sharpie. So, that's disgusting and terrifying. None of this was released to the public. After this, the police sent the letters to the FBI again, and Detective Landwehr issued another press release stating a few of the things that BTK had written. The year he was born, his family members, past life things and such, you know? And on the 1st of December, the police thought that they had the man responsible. They were going to arrest Roger Valadez, a 65-year-old Hispanic man who lived near the railroad tracks. They speculated that BTK might be Hispanic and English was not his first language due to the way that he spoke in his letters. The reporters somehow got wind of this and they showed up at the man's house and they recorded and filmed the arrest. So Valadez had some outstanding warrants and they used these as the reason to arrest him. The news broke and it became, in no other way to put it, a media shitstorm. People were arriving at this poor man's house and they were everywhere and, you know, he was under scrutiny. Eventually, he was actually eliminated as a suspect by his DNA, but he said that he was too scared to go home. He later won a $1.1 million settlement, but died only a few months later, sadly. After this, Dennis attempted to make a few phone calls to various news outlets. Almost everyone thought that he was pranking them. <laughs> so he's like, hey, this is BTK, and they were like, yeah, right, put the phone down, to multiple places. So on the 8th of December... He called Quick Trip and he was like, you have a bomb on your premises, so listen up. So the person was like, oh shit. He's like, I'm BTK and there is a package at 9th and Minnesota. So there wasn't a bomb, obviously, but the police didn't find the bomb or a package. And the package that they had overlooked was found five days later by a citizen. The December 2004 package contained a doll with its hands bound behind its back, 
several pieces of paper, and the original driver's license of Nancy Fox, tied to the doll's ankle. An index card was labeled Dollgram, you know, you know, like Fieldgram, but this is Dollgram because he's so freaking clever. A two-page document, Chapter 9, PJ Foxtail, described the details of the murder of Nancy Fox and said that Sparky Big Time meant, oh, SBT meant Sparky Big Time. This incident had greatly aroused him. On the BTK story, chapter list, chapters 1, 2, and 8 were crossed out. He also described PJ Bell, a failed project. According to Dennis, he had dropped his billfold where he had left the box, and he only realized it much later, so he had to go back and collect it because he's a dumbass. I, I do not understand how he wasn't caught sooner, because he kept screwing it all up. Now, imagine how creepy this is. It's a freaking doll. Like, dolls are scary in the first place, but this is one of those cheap, fake Barbies that you used to play with. And he's gone, and he's tied it up to resemble an actual murder victim. And he even tried to use, like, you know, pantyhose or whatever he had used in the in the crime. And the same colors that the clothing that they were wearing and all that kind of stuff. It, ew. He even drew pu- pubic hair onto the dolls, or onto the doll with a sharpie. So, the cops decided they needed BTK to take more risks. So they had another press conference where they showed Nancy Fox's necklace that they believed was missing. They asked if anyone was given this necklace as a gift in the past few years. And this did coax him into doing something. Four days later, a man driving a black black Jeep Cherokee pulled into the parking lot of the Home Depot and on security footage, you see a man dropping something off in the back of a pickup truck, looks around and he leaves. So Edgar Bishop, who worked at Home Depot, noticed that there was a Special K cereal box in his truck, and on the box was the words written BOMB and BTK PRE. Bishop thought it was a joke, and he opened the box, found a necklace and other pages of computer-type notes, and there was a, a page labeled BOOM, with a note saying anyone entering BTK's lair would touch off an explosion. On another page, there was a long list of PJs, including a paragraph about PJ Wyatt. It looked silly, and he thought that it was a joke, so he threw it in the trash at home. <laughs> wow, I mean, ew. On the 25th of January, Cake TV received a postcard from BTK. The return address was S. Killett at 803 North Edgemoor, as a reference to the Otero home. A skillet, if you read it together, is skillet. I mean, I don't know if that means anything. I'm just saying. I'm a detective. Inside this was a communication number eight. Date, week of 1-17-2005. Where? Between 69th N and 77th N on Seneca Street. Contents, Post Toasties Box, C9, PJ Little Mix, and Doll. Haunt of KS, Acronym List, and Jewelry. If somehow, let me know somehow if you or Wichita PD received this. Also let me know if you or PD received number 7 at Home Depot, drop site 1805. Thanks. Cocky. The police realized that the next package, the post-toasty cereal box, was left within walking distance to Park City, where both Marine and Dolores had lived. And Raider. So I must admit, personally, like the cereal boxes is kind of hilarious. Serial killer, serial boxes. <laughs> Dad jokes. Also, each one had a different letter from BTK, so, you know, the post-toasties 
the T was the T, and then the special K was the K. And um, inside this box was another doll, which was naked from the waist down with a rough piece of rope around her neck attached to a plastic pipe. This was taunting Josie Otero. The pubic area was also colored in with a black marker. He was a freaking sicko. This was a child. That uh. Anyway, there was also a note in the box. The notes showed yet again that BTK fancied himself some sort of cop or secret agent because he had used so many different abbreviations and he explained what all of the abbreviations meant. So, SBT, Sparky Big Time, or Masturbation, SXF was Sexual Fantasy, DBS was Death by Strangulation, and DTPG was Death to Pretty Girl. There was a whole list. So the cops went and looked at both Home Depot stores and came up empty-handed. They asked if a notice could be placed on the notice board to see if any employees came forward. Now here's where like the universe just plays beautifully along with the cops. The man who had found the cereal box in his truck, Edgar Bishop, saw the notice on the board after he had just come back from being away. So he immediately contacted the police and said that he had gone on vacation for two weeks and that his trash hadn't been taken out because of that. So he still had the box. So they collected it and inside the box was more rambling letters where he referred to himself as Rex. Uh, he said it's because it rhymes with sex. Duh. And he threatened that the cops ever went into his house. He had it all rigged up and it was ready to blow. He then said at the end, and this is what interested the cops. Can I communicate with Floppy and not be traced to a computer? Be honest. Under miscellaneous section 494. In brackets. Rex, it will be okay. Run it for a few days in case I'm out of town. I'll try a Floppy for a test run sometime in the near future. February or March. Okay. So now you can tell, like... Raider is just becoming way too overconfident and it almost seems like he, he thinks this is fun for the detectives like it is for him. I mean, he's just a moron. And, I mean, he didn't obviously realize that the people who work with computers in the FBI are geniuses. And, I mean, people who work on computers in general are geniuses. So when they saw this message, they, like, they got cautiously excited. They were like, oh my gosh, yes. What if we can get him to actually do this? So they were going to run an ad in the paper that said, Rex, it will be okay to see if he actually believed them. I mean, he did tell them to be honest. So why on earth would they? Why wouldn't? Why on earth would they lie? Why wouldn't they be honest? You know, because he's BTK. He's special. They would be honest to him. So just for the the youngsters out there, a uh, floppy disk is basically an old school method of storing files, like electronic files. You know, the save icon. That's a floppy disk. It's kind of like an old school USB. I think an old school CD. I have never used one, but I've seen them. Uh-huh. I've seen the relics. I've seen the relics of the past. <laughs> the Home Depot tapes were recovered at this point, and the cops went through them. So it was like a super busy parking lot. You can't really see much, but they went through it meticulously. And eventually they saw like a dark SUV type car go around a few times, then pulls up, parks, a man gets out. Like he looks around and places something in a truck bed and then he gets back in the SUV and he leaves. So they rewound it. They played it. Rewind, play, pause, stop, play. You know one of those tick, tick, tick things where you go through frame by frame? They couldn't see his face, but they finally saw BTK. The phantom was suddenly real. 
This was the first time he was ever seen on tape or anything like that. And they were like, oh my gosh, there he is. And after like a lot of looking, they figured out that it was a Jeep Cherokee. They studied the wheel arches. They studied all that kind of stuff. And they then went and they checked how many dark-colored Jeep Cherokees were in Wichita. And there were only 2,500. They were like, oh my gosh, we're so close. So at this point, the police were getting really tired. And so was Dennis Rader. You know, he had to be so careful with all the correspondence, triple copying, different locations, wearing gloves, packing things, dropping off. You know, he was old. So when the police said that it would be fun to use a floppy disk, he got really excited. He was like, oh my gosh, yes, I can now just put everything onto one thing and just send that. Look at me. My life is going to become so much easier. And like I said, I mean, this was a game to him, a sick, twisted game. And he did not seem to realize the enormous impact that he had on victims' families and the police and the whole town in general. This was all about him and his stupid little cat and mouse game and what brought him joy and pleasure. Right about this time, he had just recently accepted the position as the president of the church congregation at his church. Double standards, Dennis! Anyway... He sent a postcard to Cake TV on the 3rd of February 2005, thanking them and the police for their swift response. He asked that the reporters tell the police that he received the go-ahead and a test would be coming soon. On the 16th of February 2005, a package was received by a different TV station. It was sent to KSAS TV, which was a Fox-affiliated TV station. The return address was PJ Fox. 316 in West Street, and there were three index cards, a locket on a gold chain, and the purple test floppy disk. On one of the cards, he gave them instructions on how to communicate further. All the police cared about was that floppy disk. The resident computer whiz was ready when the disk was delivered to the headquarters, and he put it in, and the file that was on it was testa.rtf. The computer guy clicked on the file, which said they needed to refer to the card for directions on what to do next. And then he went into the properties of that file and saw there was a name for the author. That name was Dennis. It also had where this file was saved, which was the Christ Lutheran Church. And its last, its last used destination was Park City Library. They had a name. So they quickly did a search of the church online and found that the president was one Dennis Rader. They could not believe it. They searched for his address. They found it. The cops were like, oh my gosh, we got to go have a look. Like we begged. They were like children. So they raced there and drove like just around the street. And outside his fo- home, they saw that there was a dark Jeep Cherokee. Again, they were like, oh my gosh, this is him. We finally freaking caught him. It's, it was their biggest nightmare, and he literally handed himself over with that floppy disk. But then they were told to fall back and wait. They needed everything to be ready, and they, they could not mess this up. They had one shot, one opportunity, you know? And they couldn't let it fall through the cracks. So what Detective Landwehr said is that they needed to test him. Well, they needed to see if his DNA matched the DNA that they had. But they were going to go up to him and be like, Hey, sir, can we please have your DNA? And like, no, no, he starts shooting or whatever. So instead, they searched his family and they saw that he had a daughter named Carrie, who was in university. So the detectives tracked down her doctors and they subpoenaed her medical records and managed to get a pap smear result in which they were going to extract her DNA from. 
So there was a debate about whether this was ethical or not because it, you know, it's her personal DNA and medical stuff and this is now making her an unwitting accomplice to the police, like getting her own father captured and arrested. But eventually they decided this guy did so much wrong that it had to be done. It's a bit of like an invasion of privacy. I do agree with that. But at the same time, they were catching a monster. So they got the pap smear slide and apparently it was very difficult to get the DNA extracted from it. But when it came back, it was a match. It was all over. The nightmare was done. So on the 25th of February 2005, the cops had planned a sting operation. They were going to catch Raider in his lunch break when he was on his way home for lunch. Which they did. They pulled him over, handcuffed him and took him to the car. He asked them if they could get hold of Paula to tell her that he was going to be late for lunch. When he was taken and put into the car next to Detective Landwehr, all he said was, Hello, Mr. Landwehr. Because he wanted to be cool like Son of Sam, he said. So at this point, he didn't ask why he was being arrested, which also, guilty. They took him to be interrogated, and at first he wasn't very talkative. But then they mentioned, they, you know, they took a swab, all that kind of stuff. Eventually, they mentioned that the DNA was a match, and this is when he opened up like a running tap. He opened up like a hooker's legs. He opened up like a present on Christmas. I don't know. (laughs) The interview was 33 hours long. And he kept asking why they had lied to him about the disc. And they were like, uh, dude, we were trying to catch you. So, uh, we don't, what? So they actually had different detectives go in to ask different questions about different crimes. And eventually they managed to give up the, like, he, they got him to give up the locations of most of his hidey holes. And he also told them about his mother load, which was in his drawers at the office. And... That was just everything. It was all of the stuff. But they managed to find his self-bondage photos, crime scene photos, notes, letters, slick ads, jewelry, clothing, you know, all of the bondage gear, all of it. And in the interviews, he explained everything in excruciating details, including the fact that he had murdered Marine Hedge and Dolores Davis, which remember, was never connected to him until now. Dennis Rader's wife, Paula, at first was very much on his side, saying that it was impossible that he did this. She was adamant that it was not him. And when the DNA results came back, though, she immediately divorced him and put the house up for sale. She was like, nah, (laughs) what? Ew. And his children stopped talking to him um, until recently. Carrie... The daughter has been corresponding with him over the past few years because she said he was still a great dad and he is still her dad. In court, Raider pleaded, pled, pleaded, guilty, and the judge made him say exactly what it was that he was guilty of for every single crime. You can watch this on YouTube. He is cold, completely distanced from what he's done, and he was just, also, he went into so much detail. It's quite disturbing. He tried to apologize to the families, but they had all made a deal that when it came time for him to apologize, they would get up and start walking. But he still rambled on and on and on and explained that he had so many similarities with his victims because it's all about him, isn't it, Dennis? Asshole. 
So they did extensive testing on him as a person to see if he was sane and he was deemed fit. However, it was decided that he did have a few personality disorders, which I mean, kind of makes sense. I don't think that someone without a personality disorder would be able to do what he did. Raider received 10 consecutive life sentences at El Dorado Correctional Facility, which is 175 years at least before the possibility of parole. He was placed in segregation, which means that he is in his cell 23 hours a day and he gets one hour to go and exercise. According to the psychiatrist who evaluated him, they had the following conclusions. He had narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, impulsive behavior, bipolar disorder, psychopathic personality disorder. A neuroscientist said that she, she also believed that Radar had something called hypergraphia, which is the obsessive note-taking. This seems around right. So he denied that. He was like, nah, I don't think so, but I mean, uh, Dennis, duh. The interesting thing is that Raider grew up in a completely normal household and it seems as though he grew up pretty much normally. So could it have been the fact that he was dropped on his head that sent him down this path? Or what could have done this? I did see in one source that he had swelling on the brain. Could it have been that? I don't know because what makes someone turn into this? Someone that has had a completely normal, or not completely normal, even a relatively normal upbringing. Because, you know, normally with a lot of these people, you see that they had a terrible upbringing. They were abused. They were forced into this and that and drugs and all sorts of things. But here, there was none of that. Why did he have this need to kill? He did all of these things just to satisfy his sexual needs and desires. And he didn't take anyone else into consideration. I mean, he says that he feels bad, but I don't believe him for a second. This is typical sociopathic and narcissistic behavior. But... That it's where they're incapable of feeling normal feelings and caring for anyone besides themselves. So I, I mean, I don't know what would like. How does this? I'm not a psychologist, even close to. But I wish that somebody could just figure it out, man. What makes somebody into the monster that is this? The things that he did were absolutely freaking disgusting, and it, it's they're unexplainable. It's just so bizarre. Anyway, guys, I am finally done with BTQ. This has been an absolute ride. I hope that you guys learned something from this moron, and I hope that you enjoyed the episodes. Now, next week, I will be back with something a lot more lighthearted and fun, because I think we all need that. I really would appreciate it if you would go and follow me on my social media. Instagram is at cupoftaboo underscore podcast. Facebook is Cup of Taboo and email me on cupoftaboo at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts. And yeah, soon I'll be making short videos, maybe a couple TikToks. I don't know. It's exciting. I just need to figure out exactly what it is I'll be doing in the videos while I discuss the stuff. I don't know. Give me some suggestions. Anyway, guys, keep it real and I will chat next week. Okay, bye. Ciao. Bye-bye.